Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're discussing L.A. Confidential, the 1997 film adaptation of the James Elroy novel about police and crime in 1950s Los Angeles. The film was directed by Curtis Hansen and stars Kevin Spacey, Russell Crowe, and Guy Pearce. At Rotten Tomatoes, the average tomato meter score is 99%, and the critics' consensus reads... Taut pacing, brilliantly dense writing, and Oscar-worthy acting combined to produce a smart, popcorn-friendly thrill ride. My guests today were on the AD team. Jim Goldthwaite, you're a 30-year film veteran, currently working as a first AD. You were the key second on LA Confidential. Welcome to Below the Line. Thank you. Good to be here. Heather Kritzer, you've also been working in the industry for just about 30 years now, and you're currently working as a unit production manager. You were the second second AD. Welcome. Thank you very much. Excited. And finally, Kevin Coster, 26 years in the biz. That makes you the junior of this group. Currently working as a first AD, you are the DGA trainee on this team. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Listeners, if you haven't seen LA Confidential, well, it's a great film and you should rectify that right away. Our conversation today is likely to reveal some key plot points, so consider this your spoiler warning. We'll give you a few minutes to consider your options by starting with some origin stories. Let's do this in chronological order. Jim, you were the key second AD. Tell us how you became involved with the project. Um, well, I was invited by the first AD, Drew Rosenberg, and uh, this was actually my first big studio film. I came up in the independent world. Back in the day, we called them low-budget features. And then uh, <laughs> Drew and I had worked on a project, and she uh, asked me to do this. And luckily for me, it was also the same year I was getting married. So we worked out a plan to uh, give me a week off in the middle of production. And it happened that when they were casting, there was some, a couple of big name stars that they were trying to get. So we ended up pushing a couple of weeks and worked out that the last week of prep was my uh, wedding and honeymoon. And then I came back and started day one right out of the gates. Wow. Heather, when did you come on board? Uh, I came on um, probably just a little after Jim and I came, was invited by Jim. Um, actually, we had both just finished a film with Drew Rosenberg called Star Kid. So we came off of that and into this project. So I was there for a lot of prep, which you don't normally get, obviously, as a second second these days. They kind of skipped that. But I did get significant prep because we were doing a lot of fittings with the background. Everything was period costume. So there was a lot of stuff to do. Well, and certainly helpful. It sounds like if Jim was going to miss a week of that prep that you were there and had uh, some more time on the ground before he disappeared. Yeah, it's vague memory. I remember the wedding. <laughs> I don't remember Jim being gone. <laughs> now, Kevin, you're the DGA trainee. You don't usually get prep on these things. Did you start with filming or did you get in a little bit as far as before this thing was up, up in the air? I was in a week before filming started and I was assigned to it. So they had no choice. But I had just worked with Jim on Murder One about a month or so earlier Jim had been on the show and came off that show to start prepping on LA Confidential. So I came in and it was just about finished with the prep. Heather, you may correct me on this. Was it Star Kit called The Wizard of Waverly Place or something like that? It wasn't yeah. retitled till later. Much later. And they actually went on strike during the middle of that film. So we were like, had a constant parade of crew coming in. It's very dramatic. <laughs> That'll be a podcast for another time. Yeah. Here on LA Confidential, what kind of schedule were you guys looking at uh, for this movie? It was scheduled for 65 days, to the best of my re recollection. And when we passed the 65th day, everybody, every day, no one knew when we were going to end. And we just kept 
scheduling work and scheduling work. And it was like, finally, we were like on set day 79 of 65 and day 80 of six, 65. It was quite an experience. I think it ended up 18 days over. And I remember like the second to last day, the executive producer, Dan Colesworth, showed me a letter he sent to the studio saying that we were going to be 18 days over. And he sent that like two weeks in. It was crazy. <laughs> we, we found our pace right off the bat. I think it took us two weeks to actually make a day. It was great. How are you guys budgeted for? You talked about just coming off of some uh, low budget features, Jim, and you know, Kevin, you'd been around as a, as a trainee at that point for quite a bit. What did it feel like on this as far as the money committed to the project? It was interesting because, like I said before, those are my first studio gig. So it all seemed massive to me. But in hindsight, a great majority of the budget went into the cast. And it, it really didn't feel like a big budget film. And we had to do a lot of stuff down and dirty more or less although we had a lot of prep and curtis was amazing and having uh items available all kinds of material available to us so you really got into the film noir thing and our um, production offices were at warner hollywood and once a week he would have a film that we'd go in and could watch and get all like i said all the materials but it was back in the days before big budget uh visual effects so everything was done to camera it was it was amazing we had you know, period piece vehicles that like a moving truck from, you know, Macy's or something, because it was inevitable that we would be in Hollywood, all over Hollywood, in the middle of all these great period houses with this, you know, 1970s house or 80s house, and you, you just couldn't hide it. So we'd have to literally pull up a truck. And I always had these moving guys or moving stuff. In. And for the amount of time we used it, it didn't show up in the movie that much, thank goodness. And we had an amazing greens department. They were, they were really good. I mean, we just put it to camera. We spent so much time saying, bring that tree in here. And then we wouldn't see the modern day stuff. And, and that was also amazing. Dan. Uh, on all our scouts, we would uh, spend a lot of time talking about the art department would have to remove a lot of uh, the satellite TV back then. That, that was a big deal. And a lot of the Hollywood homes had the security um, bars on their houses. So they had to go in a lot and take a lot of things down. And the other thing I really remember was they always were repainting the roads, restriping them. Because, you know, nowadays there's yellow stripes all over the place. But back in the 50s, it was only white. That, that struck me as a big thing in the budget wise. I mean, it wasn't like we had a huge budget. If, I mean, it obviously was a step up from us from our independent days. But compared to other shows, you know, within a couple of years, I went and did some hundred million dollar films. And I, there definitely was a difference in LA Confidential and those for sure. Yeah, I remember them thinking it was more a smaller budget movie. I didn't I don't never remember anybody feeling like it was a big budget movie, although we had a lot of like, I'm sure, expensive stuff. I mean, the costumes alone, a lot of them were tailored and really specific, really detailed stuff. We didn't do gigantic extra scenes. And we tried to shy away from gigantic Vista things with oodles and oodles of stuff. Like we had picture cars. That was one of the big things going into any neighborhood. You had to get all the 1996 cars because we're shooting June 1996 for Christmas 1952. So all the cars got to go. And we had like several cars that rode with us that you just park up the street and do whatever you're going to do. I just, and I remember like a big one that we used at the very end of the shoot of my time there was having the bus from when we were in downtown LA, which we put a bunch of people in the bus to get to ride around. But I don't remember us because there were other movies at the time that were doing like 300, 400, 500 extra days. And we weren't doing any of that on this. 
this is a lot more targeted. Yeah, I was going to mention the background because that was basically my entire world on this film. And I had a really, it was an incredible experience because the artistry of each frame of setting up every shot on this film was so precise and so thoughtful. And I remember I would be standing on set and it was just, you know, very specific, the background placement of it and all. And I remember I was always battling with Dante a little bit. I'd be like, he'd be like, Heather, there's a big light over here. No background, go, go through the light. I'd be like, okay, Dante, I'll do my best. You know, I was always like battling with this maestro of like cinematography. Dante Spinotti, the director of photography. Yeah, he was an incredible person to work with. I mean, he just was like had an impeccable eye and it just, it elevated what I was doing to camera and working with Curtis. Curtis really entrusted me with the background and really enrolled me to do what I did. And I, it's really to this day, the most creative I've ever been on a film set that I feel like I really contributed visually to what was happening on set. And I'm really proud of that film. I mean, I think the, the work is incredible. And you know, the background, Charlie Messenger, I had to look that up. He did the background casting for us and he was incredible. The faces he found for us were so precise and specific and really character driven. And a lot of it was picture picks and trying to find the right look for the detectives and all the people in the police station. If you look at the scene and you look at the background, they're so spot on the faces. I mean, it's just incredible. He did an amazing job with the background. We also bumped up, by my recollection, at least 10 of the background wound up with one line or two line parts before they were done, which included things like Bud having a partner that is sitting in the office with him or Bud saying, well, who is it that could, you know, could do something with 50 pounds of Mickey Cohen's H? And the guy goes, I don't know, Mickey Cohen. And that was a background guy. And I was the one doing the production report. So I was looking saying, well, I have to give this guy a character name. So I called him Bud's Bud or Kevin Spacey calling up the Florida Lee number as scripted. It was supposed to all be on the phone. He calls the one number and they hang up. And then you get the reverse directory operator on the phone. And Curtis decided, as I recalled on the set, that he didn't want to have both the voices on the phone. So Ginger Slaughter, who was a background artist working as a secretary in the secretary pool at the police station area, she was read for it and went ahead and delivered the lines on camera. So it, you wound up with a person speaking on camera who was out of the background pool. You know, when we were in the police station, I was thinking about this, too, because we did that scene where we were doing the observation. They were watching the um, interrogations. And we had like 12 detectives that were in that room. We shot that for like two or three days, didn't we, Jim? I knew we were in trouble when Dante said, bring me my paints. And he started <laughs> painting lines on the light bulb. So it would go put a little shadow on the guys being interrogated face. But yeah, that's, it was incredible. Yeah, that was like three days with a specific group and every little nuance of movement was so specifically choreographed. And I remember standing right by camera and watching these guys and giving them the most the really subtle direction because it had to be so precise. And it wasn't like these days, like somebody wouldn't show up, like these people showed up for their calls. They were really on their game. And also, yeah, like we were never really rushed. Like we weren't rushed. That was probably what was the problem with the schedule, right? So things were, needed to be so spot on that nobody rushed us. They weren't like, oh, we got an hour to get this scene. It was never like that. We took our time and layered the background and set this every frame. And, and it started weeks before. Like Heather said, they had to hire the guy so many weeks in advance and then take him to fittings and haircuts the same time. And then continually, the guys that came back more and more, they had to just keep giving them trims, et cetera. But I, I mean, I know Heather says it's her, I, I, think she did an amazing job and this is still one of my favorite examples of someone doing uh, just amazing work like she said we were all involved Curtis forced you to get into his mind 
Because I remember early on, I asked Curtis a question, just a simple question. Curtis, do you want A or B? And you go, I don't know, Jim, what do you think? And I'm inside my head, I'm going, I think you're getting paid a lot of money to direct this film. You know? <laughs> what he was doing was he was forcing me to be inside his head. And after a while, then I would come up to him and say, hey, Curtis, I've got this. And then he'd go, great, that's what I want. You know, I mean, once in a while he would disagree, but he forced every single person from the craft service guy to Kim Basinger, he forced you to just absorb that and be in the moment and really just every single person was involved with making that movie the way it was. Yeah, that's a really good observation. When we did the interrogation scene with the with the guys in the boxes and all the other detectives, which I do remember both seeing them outside and always in the reflections that you could see all these faces and the reflections reacting to what's going on. I also recall there was a lot of cast in there. So many people, we as ADs were outnumbered because there were more cast in there than us. And you get lost in this sea of brown suits, brown and gray suits of like, okay, who's where in here? Because it, there was so many people jammed into a small space and you're just constantly counting, trying to find everybody in there. And it's very easy to get lost. And the world, the noir world that we are in, every location we went to was so visceral and so like iconic LA that, you know, you really, you were, I was just always in a creative space on this film. It wasn't really logistics at all. It was all just creativity. Heather, you bring up another good point. We've talked some about why making the period movie set in the 1950s added a lot of complication, but the movie is very much the LA of LA Confidential. And you're going to a lot of places that you also have to make proper period for the 1950s, but they were there in the 1950s. And so trying to bring that together, talk to me more about the locations you guys shot at and what was tough and what was fun. You know, with the last week or maybe the last two weeks when we shot the finale, because we actually shot the finale last, which is really interesting. I don't know how we managed to do that. But so we were up in the where the um, oil rigs are up in La Cienega area. And we were there forever. It just felt like forever. And it was all night shoots. And it was this really this really um, rundown motel. It was just a really weird environment to be in. You know, I remember we and it was all, you know, gunshots. I mean, it was all gunfire and special effects. And I remember we had the special effects team set up in one of the rooms of the motel. And the whole it was so, you know, every time you went hot in the olden days, like, are they hot? Special effects ready? They're hot. Are they hot? Like, yeah, they're hot. You know, it was all so like urgent. You know, you're right in the moment with all of this, like this finale of this movie. Intense. Yeah, back then it was funny because we used to always worry about even queuing a, a walkie-talkie. It might set off the the charges and everything. Nowadays, it's like, what are you talking about? You know. But and I can't tell you how many squibs we used in that movie. I mean, I mean, it was built from the ground up. Janine built that place, and it was storyboarded out. But we just shot the heck out of that thing. I mean, it literally, you probably could have pushed it over with your hand. By the time we were done, there was so many bullet holes in that that little building. It was crazy. For those scenes at the end we're talking about, did you do the exteriors and the interiors of all that fighting there on location? Yes, absolutely. There was like zero stage work. The only stage work was the stage when yeah. it was portrayed as a stage, but we were on location the whole time. The only time we went to a back lot, as Jim is mentioning, was at Warner Hollywood. We took over one stage and that was the Badge of Honor stage. And we shot the Badge of Honor stuff on there and we shot Christmas party and fundraiser party in there and that and we were only there two maybe three days and while we were there as i recall mars attacks i think had the other stages there and they were the big show that was going and we were the little scrappy show that was just getting to come by for for a couple of days the victory motel as i recall part of the thing was that again as jim points out we had to build it 
it was at the Stocker oil fields right in the middle of Hollywood because those are real derricks and real things. I've filmed there since then. And we took that little area and put together this crappy little motel, which is actually a lift from the very beginning of the book of a completely different idea. And we made it the, the climax of the movie. While the company was shooting all-nighters there, I had already moved on to JAG at that point. I came back for a sort of a wrap dinner that was held around midnight, as I recall. And Russell had his band, 30-odd foot of grunts, playing for the crew. He brought in all this food from, from uh, Australia. He flew in like Marmite and all this stuff that nobody could eat. Everybody was like, I mean, you felt bad, but it was because he had like this whole spread and nobody everybody was like, oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, Russell was interesting. Russell was, that was his first major role, right? And he was a total method actor, very, very intense. I mean, incredibly well cast. I mean, just spot on casting, I think, with him. But I remember a lot of times I was always at like the number one, right? Giving him a cue. I was always standing by with, with me and the costume guy whose name was Barry or somebody, but he was, all, you know, it was a Barry. It was Barry. Yeah, he was so good. This costumer was so good at his job, but him and I were always at number one with Russell. And we'd always be like a few feet behind him, just standing there. You didn't want to get in his eye line. You didn't want to screw him up. You didn't want to do anything. And you'd be like, okay, ready, action. You know, it's always just like pins and needles every time you had a cue Russell. And what about the other guys? I'm not sure I recall where Kevin Spacey or Guy Pierce were and their career trajectories at that point. Kevin had just won an Academy Award literally two months before we started shooting. He could literally have walked in holding his Oscar from The Usual Suspects, which I, I've argued was also for seven because he had those movies have both come out in 95. So early 96, he gets his first Oscar. He had another one in 99. As far as Guy Pierce, Guy Pierce was relatively unknown to anybody in the States. I believe Guy had been in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And Russell had been in a few things, but never as the lead. He'd been in a couple of things already, but this was the one that really helped push him up. Uh, Kim Bassinger, on the other hand, this was her first movie back, if I'm remembering this all correctly, after she had had a baby. And she was still with Alec Baldwin at that time, as I recall. This is her rejoining uh, movies. Jamie Cromwell, who we had as Dudley. This was when everybody was casting Jamie Cromwell, and he was great. Because while he was working with us, every other day when he wasn't with us, he would go down and work on the Star Trek movie. Guy Pierce was really sweet, really easy to work with. Just a lovely guy. Very humble. Yeah, I worked with him again just like four or five years ago. And it was like, it was a, a day before we had, was the last time we saw each other. It was just, hey, how are you? What's going on? And it was, it was kind of sad because he had just visited Curtis like, a couple of weeks before we did this project and Curtis was in his final stages, you know? And so it was really sad. Like he didn't really recognize guy when he went and visited him. So it was pretty sad, but true professional came ready to go to work all there. Great attitude, funny, nice, good. Would work with him any day of the week. One I remember the most fondly actually out of the cast was David Strathairn who played Pierce Patchett. I remember him showing up for his haircut and he had hair that was way down, you know, to his collar and everything else. And we took care of that in a second. <laughs> and then the first day we shot with him, which I believe was at his, the, the Frank Lloyd house, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright house that we had, the Patchett house, I think was where he worked first. Wow, that house was amazing. But what I remember was at the end of the day, I was ready to sign him out as you do as a training and base camp. And he said, I'm not done yet. And he took his clothes and he put them on the hanger. First of all, he asked me where the costume trailer was. Then he walked into the costume trailer, found the area that was for Pierce Patchett, and he hung up his clothing. 
And then he turned to me and said, okay, now I'm done. Never had that happen before in my life. Well, with that costume designer, Ruth Meyer, who was, she was a spit, spitfire, but incredible, incredibly talented. But I remember there was one story that came to mind where the first day Dan and DeVito worked on set, you know, we had to bring everybody up and get them approved to make sure she looked at them at base camp before they were walked to set and this whole, you know, thing. And for some reason we were, I don't know what happened, but Danny DeVito got to set before Ruth laid eyes on him. And she went up to set and like, just went off. Just, she complained to anybody she could talk to. She went to the producer, she went to the production manager and I was standing there just to Jim. And I remember watching this whole thing and I was just like, oh my God, we're gonna be fired. And I went up to the producer afterwards and went, are we, are we getting fired? He's like, no, no, I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> she just wouldn't stop complaining. It went on forever. But, you know, I, you know, for good reason, her work was impeccable. She had had that happen earlier when we did the Bidwell house, which was a five point five corner house area for the, the boxer that Exley and Vincennes go to talk to who tells them where the other three guys are. Well, that guy's just bad. So I'll tell you about him. That day, that guy went to the set, bypassed the whole line of what Ruth wanted to do. And Ruth went, it went absolutely ballistic. Now, we learned anytime anybody came in, do the lineup for Ruth so she can check everything and make sure that's what she wanted to present to Curtis before, like, the actor playing Bidwell just walks up to Curtis so that blows that idea immediately. And the, one of the very, very last days of the shoot, when we were at City Hall, I saw we had a new outfit for Kevin Spacey that had never been seen before. It was going to be a new thing that needed to be looked at based on her own breakdown. And I saw Lisa Lovas and I saw Ruth and I said, I realize we've got to have Kevin come see you before we bring him up for rehearsal in City Hall for this back and forth walk of talk. It's the scene with uh, him and Exley where Exley is just coming, I think, going in to testify and Vincennes is coming out and is saying, hey, look, I only gave up three guys that are going to be fishing next week. So you're the bad guy. You're not me. And that was a totally new outfit. Like Exley was wearing one of his standard Exley outfits, whereas Kevin had a brand new one. And I went to Ruth. I said, okay, so you need to see him. And Ruth said, no, no, we're fine. Ten minutes later, she and Lisa motioned me over to them. And Lisa said, uh, we need to see Kevin. And I looked at Ruth and Ruth glared at me and said, hell's bells. And that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> Kevin has a mind like a steel trap. It's unbelievable. I remember when he came in, you know, as the trainee and we'd be like, Kevin, what's the SAG rule on this? And be like, okay, page 29, paragraph seven, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> be like, oh. It's like having a walking encyclopedia with us. It was great. You know, when we're talking about the cast, um, when I rewatched the film before we hopped on, I did do a double take that that's uh, Simon Baker playing uh, the down on his luck actor, Matt Reynolds. Must be early in his career. He's not listed as Simon Baker. He's listed as Simon Baker Denny on the credits for this. What was it like on set with him? He was just what you think. He was young and new and eager to do anything we, we wanted. So it was, it was a pleasure working with him. It was fun, but it, it was a pretty pivotal role too, you know. They picked the right guy. I mean, casting did an amazing job. Like I said, I prep got pushed and I got through the wedding because at one point they were talking about, I think, De Niro doing the Spacey role and uh, Gene Hackman doing the Jamie Cromwell role. So there was all kinds of names flown every week. We'd be like, oh my God, I'm working with De Niro. Oh, I'm not. You know, every week it was somebody different. That Back in the day, that was like, oh my God, they got a real trailer, a full trailer, you know. I remember the Danny DeVito's first day was the day he was going to have to go into dead makeup. So it was a, you know, a lengthy process. And he called me into the trailer to talk about, well, I don't want to be in it all day. And I walk in the trailer and I thought I walked into a hunting lodge, you know, it was like, <laughs> you, got, 
stuffed fish on the wall and things like that it was just like hey how you doing and but he was the sweetest guy but he was like yeah, i just don't want to be in that makeup too long and i'm like i went down the whole day and how many hours in this and how many hours in that and he was like okay he had just uh, directed something i think matilda at the time that was one of the weird things a lot of the actors had also been directing within the past year so that was another dynamic i think that curtis was well aware of that they were directors also and i think that you could see on the days that like danny's first day was a big day for curtis he was really like you know we gotta make this smooth and go and it turned out great we killed him it was good he died I remember Kevin Spacey was frustrated with Curtis's process. He was always like, he's not really giving me any notes, not giving me any notes. And, and I, I kept thinking it's because you were perfectly cast, Kevin. He didn't need to give you any notes. You were that guy, that Mr. Hollywood. We also had, and this is again, part of the, the nature of the way the show is scheduled and built. We only had limited windows in which we could have, for example, Danny DeVito was only to be there, I think for eight days, maybe out of the whole thing, we had to target out what days you can have Danny, because he's only in that pod of the movie. Kim Bassiger, similarly, only in specific areas, really her house and two or three other places where she's targeted to be. And that's it. You know, so there were various places where you could get people. And I remember one of the things that was effective, but it became almost a, a really minor role in the movie was Mickey Cohen. And I remember hearing different names. I think at one point I heard the name David Suchet was being mentioned for him. And then we lost the window. So we went to somebody else and we went to somebody else and we wound up with Paul Guilfoyle, who's a very good actor and he wound up doing it. But that part was originally bigger. There were more scenes that were scheduled with him, but then it kind of got winnowed down and winnowed down and winnowed down and winnowed down. I was going to ask Heather, you would remember this. I know there's a scene scripted of Mickey Cohen in jail, having a scene where Johnny Stompanato comes to visit him. My recollection is we never shot it, that at some point it was decided this is superfluous and we don't need to shoot it. Or did we shoot it? And I'm wrong. I just don't remember ever shooting that. Well, I do remember being in, the, in a jail cell downtown and there's a picture of me with Curtis and Jeff Amata. I actually have a still photo of us standing there at the jail cell, but I don't remember beyond that. I mean, we shot the cell area for when we did Bloody Christmas. It was in Venice. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. And that was just horrible. I mean, I mean, that was that was a brutal night because that was that was unpleasant for everybody having to do it. I mean, that's a horrible, horrible scene. I don't mean in terms of us making it horrible. It's just it's a terrible situation when you have all these people having to play that. But it was just ugly of just the brutality of that of that scene. And that's a real thing that happened that uh, two LAPD cops got into a fight with a bunch of what they thought were underage drinkers at a bar. And then they were outnumbered. They got the crap beat out of them. And then the cops went, grabbed each one of those people at their homes and things happened. And we did our version of it, which is right out of the book, which is it just turns into just, you know, a riot inside the, the prison cell area. You know, I want to go back to what we said earlier that you didn't do really any stage work. Here's a case where that surprised me. Like, it wouldn't have been much easier to build a prison somewhere rather than to go find cells where you could actually enact what's a very crowded and a lot of camera work in that scene. Um, but you guys went and did that on location so I think that was totally conscious. I think it, it was because Curtis wanted to do 
be at the places, you know, we were at the Formosa, we were at the Frolic Room, we were, you know, we went to the places. And I think that was just another way of the characters absorbing it and, and getting into the character so easily. You know, it's, it's, it wasn't easy filming in the, the small quarters, but then that added to the tension of the, you know, literally guys are hitting themselves and each other when they're beating on the quote unquote bad guys, you know, uh, Curtis really, he, he, he really plan this out i mean he was amazing i i was always there on set like an hour before call and the only other person there was curtis every set i went to he opened it up with me and i had to go to the producers and say the set dressers have to do their job and be gone an hour ahead of time otherwise curtis would be like what's that truck doing here and i'm like well curtis it's the set dressers putting the furniture in there and he'd go well i i I gotta look at this i gotta you know he absorbed everything so much it was fascinating and also a little stressful for me because it's like if that's not there he would also go don't you remember on the scout which literally could have been five six seven weeks ago and he'd say don't you remember that there's supposed to be a cup over there or something really minute that he just had in his head and luckily i took a lot of copious notes on the scouts and i would now they got me the night before I'd pull out my notes and go, oh, make sure that's there. And not necessarily a simple thing that's written on the call sheet. Like nowadays, you know, call sheet's a lot more intricate than it was back in those days. We said what scene we were doing and some big things, but now, you know, you write every little nuance on there, but he could remember everything. So we had to be prepared and we also had to be prepared in case he changed his mind. You know, we always had something in our back pocket in case Curtis said, oh no, I want five more guys here. Oh, just so happens in extras holding, we got five more guys. You know, he, he challenged us and we had to be up for the challenge every day. He was like I said, he was the first man in and last one out. And he, he was there the whole time. And he just forced you to get in his head and absorb the whole genre and the, and the script front to back. I'll note that while, again, we were shooting everything on location, there was one major location that we shot a lot of the movie at, which we kind of used as a stage, which was the Pacific Electric Building in downtown Los Angeles. And that was the central kind of hub for us for a lot of what we did, partially because our producer, Dan Colesrud, had been shooting at that building for seven, a year or year and a half earlier, and knew that how versatile the area was and how central would be if you're shooting stuff in downtown. So anything that's uh, squad room, uh, mayor's office, district attorney's office, interrogation rooms, coroner's area, hallways with stairs, anything like that, we shot at the Pacific Electric Building. And the Night Owl Cafe, as I recall, was literally just downstairs and just down the block from the same building. So your base camp and everything, you're in one place really right there. The records room, all that stuff. So all those wood paneled offices were out of that one building. And we would convert areas and shoot them. As I recall, I, I think we, we shot some of them multiple times with different dressing and different ideas in them. And I, I think you can tell, especially it had those great arched windows. So whenever you saw that in an office, you knew we were at the PG&E. The, there's one location I do want to bring up just because it was possibly the most memorable night of the entire shoot for me. And we had to create half of it, which is up at Gramercy above Hollywood Boulevard. We had a scene that was to be an all-nighter shoot of the Hollywood pot bust. 
with a movie premiere going on in the background down on Hollywood Boulevard. And this is a scene early on where Kevin Spacey, where basically Jack Vincennes and Sid Hudgens and Sid Hudgens' assistant, who was out of our art department, and we listed him as Clip, but Danny always called him Chip. When we were shooting the scene, they go over and sneak over to this house where Simon Baker, Danny, and his girlfriend for the night are about to smoke pot and do whatever else. And then they get busted by Kevin Spacey and we ruin Simon's career. That big deal was designed to be you're looking down Hollywood Boulevard at a movie premiere. But the thing is, the building down there wasn't a movie theater. We turned it into one. It was an abandoned bank that was, at, you know, I think it had been home savings and loan or something. And we took the area and turned it into a When Worlds Collide movie premiere. And the idea had been before we got to the shoot, it was supposed to be, I think it was supposed to be 5 p.m. call and we were supposed to be done by six in the morning with taillights by nine. And the idea was the camera will be on the sidewalk and we have one lane closure down in Hollywood to be able to show the movie premiere with the limos and the background and everything Heather had set up that was about, you know, half a mile down the street so you could see all. Now that's what the plan was. Now you get to the actual night where you're going to shoot the darn thing. So the first thing we did is let's take the camera and put it in the middle of the street. That wasn't what was on the permit. So our police officer was with us, Ron Hughes, starts to blow a gasket at this point because the camera is now in the street, which it was not supposed to be. Then Dante, looking at what he's got to do, says, well, you set up one lane closure for the stuff. Where are we putting my lights that have to light the whole front of it? So I need another lane. So my lights, my light, what are the lights for? Yeah. And so now Ron is going, you know, because now we've closed two lanes on Hollywood Boulevard on a Friday night in the middle of the, of the middle of the summer. People are going to the movies, but not there. So result is we're making a giant mess. And we kept shooting and shooting and shooting. And finally, we get to going in the house and we're moving inside the house at about 530 in the morning as the sun's coming up. We're still not done. And we shot till 9 a.m., as I recall. And it took till 11 or noon to wrap out of there. And I remember somewhere as the house is now being tented in because the sun has come up. I remember that's when we began handing the egg McMuffins out on set. And, <laughs> and Linda, who was first thing in there, was saying, I want food. I'm hungry. And I'm trying to get food for her. That was when I walked into a tree while we were in the middle of everything else. I remember that very well. I remember staging all of that down there. And I kept, I think I kept saying, do they see any, do they see it? Do they see it? Cause I set up this whole thing and I was way down the end of the street. So I didn't know what was going on at camera that night, but it's like, do they see the premiere? Can they, I, I you look at it in the movie well. and it's dead on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, had, I had a totally different memory at eight o'clock. I called my wife to say, Hey, we're still filming. I don't want you to think I, I'm dead in a thing. And Kevin was behind me. And he said, yeah, Jim, tell your wife that you're going to do my close-up now at eight in the morning. <laughs> and I just deadpan said, oh, yeah, and by the way, honey, uh, we're doing Kevin's uh, close-up right now. It's just wouldn't let him win, you know. It was like, <laughs> wasn't my idea. That was the second idea, you know. <laughs> Kevin, I'm surprised you had you have so many vivid memories of the actual set because I remember you were running base camp, so it's I think it's great that you were you had so much involvement up there. I didn't really, it, but that was one where the base camp was close to it, like the Wilcox place when we were at the Bracken house, base camp was down the street. So I would come up when I could, and I would come up when I could at, at Pacific Electric. You're absolutely right. Most of what I did, my memories are mostly at a base camp, but I do remember a night like that. And I do remember, you know, th there were little things like when we did the night owl and we had to put all the dead people in the back, one of them is Graham Beckel, who plays Stensland. And I had read the book. 
And I like the, I, I, by the way, Graham Beckles, another really good actor that we had in there. And he's, he was in and out in, in a small role. And I went to see him at his trailer because first of all, he didn't have much to do in the movie. And I brought the book with me and I asked him to read a couple of the letters Stenzlin writes from jail because in the book, Stenzlin doesn't die in the night owl. Stenzlin just loses his career. Instead of being a thug with a badge, he just becomes a thug and he winds up getting the gas chamber. And there are letters he writes to Bud White saying, but I regret the things I did in my life. And I went there and I asked Graham if he would read me those letters in character, which he did. <laughs> and then I brought him in and we put his body in the floor and covered him in blood. <laughs> Interesting, like, because that was one of those iconic locations that was really tiny, really, really small. And the bathroom where we had to put all the dead bodies was all the way through the diner to the back. So it was just this constant, like, you know, everybody trying to vie for their, their real estate to try to get in to do their job. The special effects makeup people, special effects, the blood had to be poured on the ground. People had to be laid down carefully. And, you know, it's you get 65, 70 people trying to get in and out of there, trying to get, you know, what they need on camera. It's intense. There's a couple of things you guys have noted. One, that Curtis Hansen very concerned about the detail. Also that you didn't feel rushed. And that sounds like with the schedule extensions, but that's got to run contrary to this idea that you only had certain actors and some big name actors for very small windows of time. And so was it a sense that the schedule was constantly shifting and some sort of chaos around getting it done? Or did it feel more deliberate to all of you? I felt the pressure every time we had these schedule changes, it would be uh, multi-layered who I had, I first of all, I had to call casting. So they would talk to them a bit. Then it was also all these actors, assistants, et cetera. And just, it was a, it was a labyrinth because, you know, Oh, Danny's he's in a spotting thing. I literally had a golf cart at Warner Hollywood where I drive Danny DeVito from our set over to the dubbing stage where he'd have a spotting session and then drive him back, things like that. It was, it was multi-layered. And, and Kevin was in posts on um, Albino Alligator at the time. So it, it, it was literally a Jenga puzzle. So, but it wasn't like, it, I think Heather is right. It, it felt like the project was what everyone's goal, you know, and everyone bought into it. So if we went over, then it was a little bit of, oh, what day can we get all these people together uh, again? <laughs> and uh, it was, it was interesting, but it was, like I said, it was, it was probably the toughest the most challenging project I ever did and the most rewarding all at the same time. Like I said, I was only in the union for like two or three, three films at that point. So just knowing, you know, all those IA rules, et cetera. And Dan would, Dan Colesworth, he would pressure me every night. Oh, what's the turnaround on the, you know, a canary wrangler in Idaho? I, I don't know, Dan, you know, he would, he would just, it was crazy, but we survived, but it was, it was the project came first. And it's, you know, one of the things I always tell people is that we, I came from the independent world. And every time you did a, a film, <laughs> Heather can definitely understand it. They give you this script and they go, this is a really good script. And it's the same script you read last week, but the guy's now Luigi, not Giovanni, you know, or whatever, you know, and they got killed a little different ways, but all those independent films are fairly much the same, you know? And then when I read LA Confidential, I was like, finally, this is a really good script. And I mean, and from that point on, you, you just want to do everything you could to make it right. You know, I mean, we all knew we had a special project there. I mean, if it wasn't for that darn little Titanic film, it would have been the Academy Award winning film that year. We should have won. I want to recount. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will note that when we would go over, it wasn't usually so much of a scramble. Everything it was more that things were certain things were pushing back. Other places were sort of locked where they were and had to be where they were. 
Like I think when we went to City Hall, that wound up being a lock. Like this is when you're going to have to do it. But Kevin Spacey, for example, was supposed to be finished by a certain point. I think we went over by two weeks on him of when not not him working all that time, but that his end date was later. And that all that did. I remember asking Dan Colzer, well, what does this mean? He said, it means Kevin makes some more money. That's what this means, because <laughs> there's a penalty clause and you've got to pay that. By the way, I wanted to mention one other thing that when we were in the first part, the only part of prep I was there for, right before we put out the schedule, Drew the first and Dan, the producer, asked all of us, just look through the schedule again to see if you see any typos or anything else before we put this thing out. And it's the one contribution I got to make was that one, which is I looked at it and I saw that City Hall was filming before we went to Lynn Bracken's house. And I put my hand up to say, don't you want to shoot that after? Because when we go to Lynn Bracken's house, we take pictures with the city councilman that we catch in flagrante delicto with Lynn Bracken, with, with Kim Bassinger. And then later, we're going to see him at City Hall and hand him photos and say, he says, you tell Pierce Patchett, I'm not voting that way. And you really take a look at these. And I asked, well, you could do that with inserts. But do you want to be able to hold the photos and go up to the guy's face and show that you're there? And I remember Dan pulled everybody back into his office, said, we have to move City Hall. <laughs> that was the only thing I had any kind of impact like that ever probably would ever happen in that whole shoot. Planting the seeds for your career as a first AD yourself, Kevin. That's uh, getting in there early on that. I think you contributed more than that, Kevin. But <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Just a little. <laughs> I mean, you know, you had to deal with a lot of high, you know, big talents at base camp and that's a whole dance in and of itself. You know, I know Russell was, could be challenging down there as well. You know, most of them were fine. The biggest one we had to deal with was Kim and not because of a problem with him is that Kim came with all of her people. She had her makeup people, her hair people, her own trailer where we had to bring in these, I don't know how expensive this was, these Italian, the thing, you know, the globes you put over somebody's, it's like that was all part of this creation of her character. And it was a big deal to create that character every day. I feel like the first day she was on set, I don't know if it was the first day we were at that apartment. She did the scene where Bud comes to the door and they have that. I feel like that was the first day she was on set. And I remember we were lit, we waited. I mean, she went, took her like four, a half a day to go through the works to get the look perfect and the hair perfect. It was literally all of us standing around like, wow, another three hours. I mean, it was incredible that we did that. Yeah, when I called in the lunch report that day, they said, when was the first shot? And then I said, I'll call you when we get it. We didn't get it for lunch. No, it was, it was a production. Also, we had to deal with the fact that every paparazzi that was chasing us, that's who they wanted. They wanted Kim Bassinger. And so we had to deal with the fact that getting her in that look without having that leak to, you know, the National Enquirer star or whatever else, you would to be careful how you get her in and out because you can't just walk her down Hollywood Boulevard and put her in the set. The second you do that, it's going to be all over the place. And we've just given away one of the main looks of the movie before anyone can see it. Back to the fact that we should have won that year. So, you know, <laughs> for the DGA awards ceremony, um, I think we were table two, right? So Titanic yep. was table one, we were table two. And I remember I wasn't even invited because they didn't used to let the second seconds come to those award shows. And Curtis went and said, she's coming and insisted that I come. I mean, I was really grateful that he included me. No, they let me come too. I remember that. Oh, and I'm, I remember that Curtis was there. We were there. Uh, Lisa Grundy was there. Curtis's assistant at the time. 
There's another person, by the way, I wanted to mention in this, who was also a big part of a lot of what we did, Jeff Imada, who was the stunt guy who arranged a lot of these shootouts and all these people that came in to do these bits like the Bloody Christmas Riot. But the one in particular I'm thinking of is we had to do this big shootout in this second story walk up for the Navarrete place that was we, we shot it partially day for night and partially night for night of the three guys who we interrogated in the room and now they've escaped and now uh, Exley and Carlisle go running in and it's a giant shotgun battle. And then Exley chases the one guy down to the elevator and shoots him in the elevator. And I remember Imada had set it up. Curtis wanted to have the guy raise, he's running down the hallway, knock somebody over before getting in the elevator to give it a bit more pep. So we took Jeff Imada and we put him in drag as an elderly Asian woman. And knocked him down. I can't believe you remember that. <laughs> I remember last night when I saw it, I said, oh my God, that's Jeff. Wow. And you know, so, Jeff Amato was incredible. I've tried to hire him since. He's never available. <laughs> no, he's, he's an incredible. The, well, the other part is when we shot the bit where actually gets to the, the elevator and sticks the shotgun in before the door could close and fires. There was a shot that Curtis wanted back on Exley that I thought we had, and I don't know what had happened, but for whatever reason, Curtis kept saying, we owe a shot in the elevator. It's, it's the elevator door opens and there is Exley looking at what he just did going, oh my God. That was shot at the Victory Motel at the end of the shoot where they put an elevator door in and a back wall and had Guy Pierce take the same pose that he took before so that Curtis could get that close-up shot of the elevator door opening back up and seeing his face. And it was shot all the way down to the tail end of the schedule three months after the time we shot the first part of the sequence. Kevin, you just amaze me. Kevin can <laughs> give you the name of every episode of Private Practice. In the <laughs> I remember one when we were shooting at the um, Queen Mary, we were shooting a big dance scene with choreographed and dancers. And it was very intricate. And it was a really big day. We might've been there for multiple days. And I remember I got on the freeway. It was probably a really short turnaround. And I drove, I ended up in Irvine and no oh. one near the Queen Mary. And I remember I was like an hour late. I mean, I was literally beside myself with terror that I was late. And I finally pulled off the freeway and called Jim on a, on a, on, you know, you get a payphone, you know, the old payphone. And he's like, why didn't you call soon? I'm like, I was trying to get there. And I remember they all thought, <laughs> I don't know what, Jim was just like, they were all glaring at me when I finally got there because it was a really intense day. But I literally have never been so panicked in my entire life that I was like, was in Irvine. <laughs> I had to be in Longview, wherever. <laughs> I wanted to add there, most of what is in the script actually wound up in the movie. Some of it we condensed. There were certain scenes that were two scenes and we punched them down into one. But there are two, what I consider to be major scenes. We shot them. They do exist somewhere on the cutting room floor. They were never included on any DVD as a deleted scene or any Blu-ray or anything. And since Curtis is no longer with us, it is unlikely anybody will ever find these scenes. You will find them in the script. And we did shoot them. Unlike the bit of Mickey Cohen in jail, these other two, one was after Exley makes it with Lynn Bracken and Danny DeVito's taking pictures behind the, the, the glass. There was a second scene of them sitting on the floor, half dressed, 
having a nice character moment with each other. And then we cut to behind the glass, you know, Danny Vito going, I mean, how long are you guys going to still be out there? I want to get out of here. And the other was after Jack Vincennes finds the dead body of Simon Baker Denny, Matt Reynolds on the ground. This was like the really thankless part that Simon had to do, which is we gave him the throat slit makeup and he had to sit there like this for God knows how long on the floor of that motel. After that, Vincennes was supposed to go back to the party, to the fundraiser party and confront Ellis Lowe, who he knew knew what had happened. And you see Ellis Lowe is there, but he's not wearing his tie. And he comes up and says, where's your tie? What happened? Did something get on your tie? Meaning the blood when you killed this guy. And at the end of it, Lowe pulls his tie out of his pocket and it's perfect. And says, I think you're about done, Vincennes. And Vincennes goes, God, I hope so. And he leaves. Both those scenes were shot. One of them with a lot of background from Heather. They've disappeared and have never been seen again. It's a bit of a surprise, right? I think Curtis Hansen is so precise, as you guys said, about what he wanted and the fact that there are only two scenes that got shot and then ended up on the cutting room floor itself is a atypical for a movie of, of this scale. There were two moments that we had where we had interesting visitors come in to see us who you wouldn't normally see come by. One was when we shot, there was a scene in another police station that we shot in Burbank or somewhere where we're dealing with Kim Basker and her beat up look after, after Bud's beating her up, where Exley comes to see her. I remember Alec Baldwin came in to visit and see how she was doing. Of course, he comes in on the day we beat her up. <laughs> um, but I remember he came in. I remember one person coming up to me and saying, who's that? Because they didn't recognize Baldwin. I looked over and made a lucky guess that I think he's visiting his wife. The other was when we shot the Fitch house, James L. Roy visited us. That was the one time I remember him being on the set was he came that day and he sat at the monitor that day. I think he came a couple times. I remember talking to him a couple times. He was such an interesting guy and he signed the book for me. I don't know if I have it anymore, but he was really interesting. I wish I had had the understanding of the breadth of his writing experience at that time. I would have just been like all over him, you know, just trying to talk to him more. But, you know, everybody was just really down to earth and approachable. I didn't feel like, you know, Russell was tricky, but I think like for the most part, like everybody on the set was very on the same page. I didn't feel like there was a lot of like tension. People weren't super burned out or, you know, I don't know. Do you know what I mean, guys? Like, That's great. Anybody have the stories that burn in a hole in your cheek that we didn't get to? Robert was our chef, but he was going through Michelson. He was working as, as the chef for one of my, Steve Michelson's trucks at the time before Michelson then did Limelight. This is when it was still Michelson's catering. And our chef was Robert, who then opened up Chef Robert Catering. And he was really good. I worked with Chef Robert a couple of times, I remember. And I remember every lunch, it was, maybe it was breakfast. And you, again, Jim and Heather, you know this better than I do. I remember you would always bring Linda the first an espresso. It was, and, and it was different kinds. This is long before Nespresso or any of these other, you know, instant make us. I mean, he was making espresso on that on that truck. I remember that. One of my major jobs uh, was always talking to the fire marshal about Dante smoking on the set. I would it was my goal. He would go, Jim, go talk to this man. And I'd go talk to him and figure out a way that Dante got a special papal dispensation to smoke on the set. It was always <laughs> he was the 
nicest gentleman I've ever worked with. And Heather got to work with Dante again fairly recently, but I worked with him right after this on another film. And it was actually, I'd been firsting at the time. And because it was Dante, I agreed to be a second second on a film just because he's such a dream to work with. It was, he's definitely top of my list of great human beings, let alone great cinematographers. He would always smoke those little uh, cigarillos and not, he wasn't smoking Swisher Sweets. He was smoking the good ones. I remember that. He would always have two or three of those a day, if I'm remembering right. I, I don't remember the cigarettes, but I'm sure I just took it, you know, in stride at that time, because that was in the olden days when everybody smoked and you just, you know, but it was inside the stages and everywhere. So, um, but I wanted to, I wanted to mention the onset painter, the standby painter, John Hinkle, because he was like, Literally, you couldn't do one minute on that set without Dante. John Hinkle, I need John Hinkle. You know, you're always like, John, stay close, stay close. Because, you know, Dante was, again, just taking every little small detail. And that painter worked in every, on every shot, every single shot of that film. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a film where everybody contributed. I mean, we always say that, but this really was the truth. Every single person had a job to do and they contributed to the final product. I mean, every single one, you know, you, Curtis just got us all involved and he really wanted us to, you know, absorb it and live it. And I think we all did after a couple of weeks, we were just like, oh yeah, in this time period, they would have this, they wouldn't have that. They would have worn a hat. The gentleman always had that, you know, everything, the little details, you know, we just, we all just lived that period of our life for those months. And it's a, it's a tribute to Curtis because Curtis, you know, more or less, lack of better words, forced us to get into that mode. I mean, it wasn't a hard world to be excited about. I mean, fil doing film noir, I mean, oh my God, that's like a, a dream. And this movie really comes together and I think it stands the test of time. I mean, as you guys have mentioned for, I think many of you, certainly a notable project in your past and a film that I sat down and watched again and enjoyed it almost as much as I did the first time I saw it, even after all these years. It definitely holds up, as they say. Well, I have also really enjoyed hearing uh, your stories from the set. Uh, I hope this is much fun for you guys uh, with these trips down memory lane. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And that's another episode done for season nine. If you're new to the podcast, I hope you'll check out the rest of our catalog. It's easy to peruse everything we've published at the website, below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb, so you can cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send an email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos or other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Loyal listeners, you are much appreciated. If you're enjoying the season, tell your friends. We'll be back again next week. There was another guy named Kenny that came in with uh, Linda, I remember, because he had worked with Linda on Turbulence. Hmm? I think Kenny's still a PA. <laughs> you talking but, about Kenny Vasquez. That's not yeah. what you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I know oh. Kenny. <laughs> <laughs>